when gas prices like skyrocketed earlier this year, it's very hard for me to justify what might be hundreds of dollars outlay every single month on attending reenactment stuff. I don't have unlimited money. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm great. Great to be back. So before we get started, I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you to everybody who supports the podcast via Patreon and a special thank you to our newest Patreon supporter, Jonathan. Uh, thank you very much, guys. We couldn't keep this going without you. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. And thank you again to our lovely Patreon community. So I'm excited for today's episode, um, another one with kind of a different topic. We are going to talk about um, sort of macroeconomic factors and how they affect our hobby of World War II reenactment. And by macroeconomic factors here, I'm talking about like the economy sort of in a large scale. So things we're going to be talking about things like inflation and uh, gas prices and wages. Of course, it's not going to be dry uh, economic talk because neither Ben or I are any kind of economics expert. So we're basically just going to mostly be talking about uh, how previous ups and downs in people's in the financial situation of the world has affected reenactment and maybe think about um, how things that we're experiencing now will have an effect going forward. Well, Chris, do you want to start us off? I mean, you were reenacting when the two thousand and what two thousand eight housing market crash happened. You know, I feel like I have definitely observed uh, economic factors affect reenacting, but uh, over you know more recent years, you know, as opposed to the last twenty years, you know. Yeah, I think um, you know for people who kind of didn't live through it, to me. 2008 was a lot more than a housing crash. It was like a global financial disaster. Um, a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people lost a lot of money that they had in the stock market or retirement plans. Um, it was it was hard times, and it was the first time in my life, really, certainly in my adult life, that I could remember anything like that happening. Um, and I think that it did have an impact on reenactment in a variety of different ways. That's interesting. I mean, did any, like, kit suppliers go out of business around that time or anything, like, dramatic like that? Obviously, you know, like, if people had money to burn on reenacting before that and then, you know, that happens, they are maybe have to tighten the belt a little bit. They can't, like, spend on kits or going to events like they could beforehand, right? Well, look, I don't want to name names here, but I knew people whose jobs changed as mm -hmm. a result of that uh, economic disaster, and I knew people who previously would be at every event and who would think nothing of, of spending more money on kit, and then suddenly um, now they're... You know, they get laid off or their wife gets laid off, you know, if they're in a family and the household's income situation changes. And I mean, look, uh, 
just to say it in the most plain terms possible, I believe that there was a decline in the total number of reenactors around, certainly in my circles, in the immediate aftermath of uh, what happened economically at that time. I certainly believe it. I mean, look, I was... 2008. I was a kid then. Me joining reenacting was still a good four or five years off, but my dad lost his job during that period, you know, and I remember he was out of work for like almost like a year or something, and uh, it it definitely affected my family, and I remember that time, you know, I I don't think I had the sort of financial literacy or the words to understand it, but uh, it, it's definitely a period that if you live through it, you probably remember it. Sure. And uh, look, I saw people selling kit items. I saw people leaving the hobby. I saw kits going up for sale at a rate that certainly seemed to me to be greater than what I had seen previous to that time. Yeah. And I guess kind of the reason why I bring this up is because, look, unless you've been living under a rock, or maybe if you're listening to this from the distant future and you don't know what's going on in the, in the time in which this is recorded, we're experiencing uh, some worldwide economic changes right now. Yeah, it's it's really something, and it's nothing good. And it's it's really wild to see that, you know, the, the prices of, you know, some things seem to be going up, you know, other things seem to be bizarrely say, staying the same. Um, it's just it's more expensive to travel right now. It's it's not good. Um, you know, I feel like I was having a conversation with somebody uh, today, and I mentioned you know just in just kind of almost like lazily some comment about inflation. You know, which you know I I just I found myself doing because it's topical now. It's just it's it's something that's on people's minds. Sure, I mean. Uh... Just from a personal perspective, the when gas prices like skyrocketed um, earlier this year after the war in Ukraine began, um, I really did have to take a hard look at my own uh, situation. I mean, I'm not I don't have unlimited money and most of the places where I reenact are a minimum of two hours away. And, you know, I like to reenact kind of frequently, but um it's very hard for me to justify what might be uh, hundreds of dollars outlay every single month on attending reenactment stuff. Sure, totally. I mean, I feel like it really hurts when you're playing when you're paying in excess of fifty dollars uh, to fill your gas tank. You know, especially if you're doing a trip where maybe it's just you in the car. Yeah, and maybe you're doing multiple tanks. Or, yeah, you know, even a single tank. You could use a tank of gas almost in a in a day trip, depending on uh, how far you have to go to do it. Sure, and how fuel you know how fuel efficient is your vehicle, you know, and all that sure. stuff. Sure, um, but look, not only that, but the cost of so many other things have gone up. That I think you know, I kind of, I mean, I'm sure almost everybody has noticed uh, their grocery bill is going up. And then we have this problem now where uh, home heating costs are apparently skyrocketing and going to be affecting people uh, probably all over the world this winter. Yeah, I have oil and I'm not looking forward to this winter. It's it's not going to be good. I believe it costs uh, in our area more than twice as much per gallon, the oil now. So Crazy. it was already a bunch of money to heat one's home in the win- wintertime. Yep. And now that's going to be twice as much. Mm. You know, it was a big number and now it's a big number times two. Mm. 
Um, yeah, I think we're almost we're getting away from reenacting. We're talking more about just society in general. But um, it's it's funny. I feel like there's a vendor out of China that makes uh, parka sets, and the parka sets are prohibited. Can I say? Can I name vendors? I mean, yeah, Military Harbor. Um, they make they make uniforms, and I I was actually witness to a conversation on online I forget where a few days ago where you know people were saying that their tunics used to be like eighty nine dollars and now they're like over a hundred dollars I think like a hundred thirty dollars or something you know and then it's like add fifty bucks if it's custom you know and like you could be paying like you know hundred fifty dollars for a tunic from this this company now. And, um, well, you mentioned their parka sets are like, it's like $800. Yeah, full yeah, yeah. And I, I was wondering where that number came from because as some wholesale in California, they make their products in the United States and, you know, they're, you know, they have a quality reputation and their parka sets are very expensive, you know, but I'm wondering if they base the cost of their parka sets off of SM wholesale or, or what, you know? Or well, if... I think I think it's good that you bring that up, Ben, because that really is, I think, kind of a macroeconomic factor, which is sort of like world economy, you know, the nature of trade. The fact is, when uh, Maine and China goods first appeared for World War II reenacting, they were like absurdly cheap. You know, they were a fraction of what we had been paying for the same items. And I think a lot of people didn't buy them because they were cheap, you know, and they had this reputation for being shoddy. And I admit that when I was a young reenactor, I bought into this, you know, and I only wanted to buy things that were made in China or, or sorry, only wanted to buy things that were made in the USA or Europe as opposed to China, you know. But, well, I mean, it, look, it was crazy. You could buy an M43 tunic in whatever size you wanted, brand new, a, yeah. a quality item for 50 bucks. Yeah. Um, a parka, a, the win, the Winteranzug set, the uh, parka and trousers worn by the German soldiers in World War II, um, it was $40 for the top, or maybe it was $60. $60 for the jacket, $60 for the trousers. 120 and, bucks, And sometimes significantly less. So, you know, you've got to think we had gone from a situation where when I got started in reenacting in 2000, it was $300 for the top and $300 for the bottom. So the idea of a whole unit being uniformly equipped in these things, I mean, these people would have had to have had very deep pockets because that's just one part of your uniform. Whereas uh, just a few years later, you could have entire units that were totally uniformly outfitted and brand new winter unsuit sets because you're asking people to lay out $120, which in the grand scheme of things, from a reenactment sense, really is not a lot of money. Yeah, and I think uh, the Erste Zug did it at one of the gaps that, that I was at, and uh, they looked really good, you know? But then, now the pendulum has weirdly swung where... Uh, now there is no, to my knowledge, there really is no cheap Vinteranzug set anymore. No, no, there is. You isn't. can get USA made product. You can get, I think there might be some European made product. I don't know if Panther Store or I think um, they do. I mean, World I, War II reenactment shop might also as well. I think Panther Store does make them still. I think somebody commented that actually it costs more money to buy a Winter uh, Winter Tonanzug from. Uh, military harbor in China than it does to buy, uh, you know, one from Panther Store in the Czech Republic, which, you know, seems counter. Um, and don't get me wrong, the, the print quality of the military harbor, uh, you know, 
camouflage uniforms actually does look really good. Um, and so I can't fault that, but uh, it's just like, where are these prices coming from? It's all over the map. Like, is it because they're not making as many as they thought they were going to, you know? Like, I think that's likely. Something that Chris and I have talked about is when, you know, that when, chi- when uniforms started being made in China, you know, Chris, you postulated, if I'm remembering right, that uh, these Chinese manufacturers were promised by overzealous Americans that they could really be raking in money by making these things for you know cheap labor over there right i I heard that specifically from some people who were in the know that um some of the chinese manufacturers when they came on board they were basically uh the uh, what they thought their expectation of how many units a year that they were going to be selling was like insane you know it was like wildly overinflated and so when some of those uh, vendors found out that it really wasn't going to be possible for them to have a factory running a shift every day cranking out reenactment uniforms for Americans then they realized you know that was part of their business strategy and their business strategy wasn't going to work if that wasn't going to be that way I think it's telling um so Sturm um they used to make all kinds of stuff and uh you know they used to make parka sets and they used to make panzer uniforms and uh like stugraps and i there's a few other items i know i'm missing and you know when i started the hobby these things were commonly available from any vendor at the front or Hessian antique you know you could buy and it just, it seemed like they were never going to go away you there know, were like, luftwaffe uniforms yep. luftwaffe m43 caps yep. every kind of panzer uniform yeah. early and late panzer uniforms they made world war 1 uniforms all the different patterns of camouflage the camouflage smocks and I just thought this stuff would be available forever you know i kind of took it for granted back then or i thought it was shit you know and now it's gone, and I feel like the prices, if you can, if you can get, you know, something that was made by them, are going up because people are realizing, hey, these things weren't crap, you know. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw a Luftwaffe M forty three cap from Sturm for sale, but uh, at one time Hessen Antique was selling those caps for, I believe, it was six dollars and fifty cents. That's insane. Yeah, I I bought some Sturm. Uh, M34 caps or whatever the nomenclature is for the Luftwaffe Schiffian style cap. And I think they were $2. That's crazy. Even the cap that I wear the most for reenacting is a Sturm made Army M34 cap, but I believe it cost me $6. That's cool, dude. So that's really cool. You know, what I'm talking about here is like a, a sort of a golden age of availability of reenactment kit where you had these. Uh, Asian manufacturers coming online, cranking out stuff in such huge volume that in order to move it, uh, the uh, vendors had to sell these things for $2. And and you could buy, I mean, for, I don't know, $100, you could have bought a whole box full of woolen camouflage uniform items. Sure. And I don't think that there's any way that you can do that now, even if you buy from the very cheap vendors who sell directly from China, if you're buying from Hiki Shop or whatever. It's still more expensive now, significantly so, I would say, than you could get the you know equivalent quality items for in, like, I don't know, 2008 or whatever. Totally, dude. Also, too, I don't know if, I mean, this, this was something that I looked into a few days ago, but uh, I went on Hiki Shop's website, and I noticed that there was, there was something I wanted to buy for them, and it wasn't available, and it looked like they had really sort of slimmed down the availability of wares on their uh, 
you know, on their on their website. And uh, I'm wondering, is that a is that a bad sign? You know, are they going in? A, is there a reason for that? You know. Yeah, well, that, that you know, what does the future hold for availability of reenactment gear? I mean, um, let's kind of look at it a little bit. Uh, I mean, are we seeing vendors going offline? I think to some extent a case can be made that we are. Um, there is a seller who is kind of a cottage industry guy on Facebook, uh, John Waite. I've never bought anything from him. I've never really talked to him. He's, uh, I think, uh, in the somewhere in former Czechoslovakia, if, I, if I'm correct on this. And he sells uh, bread bags, and I think one of his specialties was like canvas MP40 ammunition pouches. But he has announced that uh, his sales have declined to the point that he's not going to keep doing this anymore. That's unfortunate. That is unfortunate, you know. Yeah, I never bought anything from him, but I always saw his stuff, and uh, I think it definitely improved in quality, and it didn't look bad. And if I needed a bread bag, I would I would have considered buying one from him. And now, of course, you know, it's like it's he's gone, you know? Uh, another one is uh, Janka in Germany, the legendary producer of high-quality reproduction uniform and headgear items. Um I've heard that the proprietor is retiring and that there's nobody in line to take take over the business and that production of those items will cease. Yeah, I heard that he was selling off um, his uh, remaining inventory. He was not, you know, he was not manufacturing anything anymore. And I also heard word that he had been difficult to reach for the last few months, you know. And then, of course, this was very sad for people who knew him, but Bill Biro, the American distributor for Yonka, passed away recently. He was an old-time reenactor and a true local legend and, you know, somebody who was very foundational to the hobby in this area. So that was very saddening. And, of course, in Europe, uh, Zib Militaria has shut down their web shop for, uh, uh, for good, I guess. Um, the owner had become sick, and I guess there's no one to take it over there either. So he is just exiting the market, and that's the end of Zib. I remember Zib. I mean, they had those great Zelts, you know. Like, I, I, I definitely bought stuff from them over the years. And so, yeah, that is that is saddening to hear. My primary reenactment jacket came from Zib. It's a Sturm-made uh, M40 tunic that I bought from them. I, I bought uh, a bunch of uniform items from them. I have a, a cap from them, um, a Trillich uniform. You know, this is... Uh, a supplier that's not there anymore. So uh, have there been new reenactment vendors coming online? Of course, there always are. Um, but I would suggest that a lot of those people are sort of cottage industry type guys. I I don't really think that there's been like a any kind of like one-stop shop or sort of industrial production, tons of stuff in stock vendor that has appeared basically in years. Well, I would say, I would counter that. I would say Military Harbor, I feel like they came out in the last two years or so. Um, and I know I did say that, I, you know, I, I sort of balked the price of their parkas, but that said, their wool stuff, I've ordered an, a number of items from them, and they have this, they have a really remarkable range of products, and uh, it, uh, I don't know, I, I, I think their uniforms are good, so I, I would say that you know, they're the, the sort of most recent addition that I can think that, that seems to be think, sticking around. I think they've been around longer than you think. 
What do you think, dude? I think Military Harbor's been around for a while. I mean, I remember seeing their stuff on eBay, you know, MH Metal Heart on eBay. I feel oh, like okay. I have seen All that right. for a long time. Um, and certainly they've they've become more prominent and they've introduced a lot of new products. Uh, there's also, you know, Replique or uh, World War II Reenactment Shop or whatever oh. that vendor is called. They're... I would call them new, but I think I bought something from them like four years ago. Well, okay, here's another elephant in the room that just occurred to me. The war between Russia and Ukraine has really sort of cut off a lot of makers that are in that part of the world. I mean, I haven't heard of anybody ordering anything from Schuster in a while. And I think you probably can still. But uh, I don't know, Chris. Have you yeah, heard? I don't. I don't want to tell people that they can't order from from Schuster. I believe that you can. Yeah. Um, or and in fact, uh, from my understanding, you can order from all of those vendors. Mm. You can order from Veshmashak. You can order from Replique. Uh, but there is no doubt that the look. Uh, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. The maker Voin, who is one of the premier sources for uh, Soviet reenactment kit. They're located in Ukraine. They are shut down right now. Yeah, I heard it was because like the they were without power or something because some some power plants. I mean this this could be this could be erroneous, but uh, yeah, it's just it's it's wild how this this conflict has affected uh, you know buying from that part of the world. Well, um, I have a reproduction blanket that I bought from a seller in Ukraine. Uh, not that long before the war started. I really like this item. It's coarse. It's smelly. I think it's uh, a good stand-in for a wartime blanket. And the last I saw from that vendor, if I remember right, it was an announcement that they had gone to fight against the Russians, and I never heard from them again. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. You know, and there was a, another maker, uh, Zella 39. I had bought a tornister from them. Uh, you know, I don't know if I could order from them now. It seems, look, it's a, the world is crazy. Um, you know, like I say, macroeconomic factors. We've got these supply chain problems. I go to the store. I'm always surprised by things that I would think would always be available that are not available. Sure. I, so I had to really uh, modulate my behavior over the summer because my car was uh, my car was like on its last legs. I'd been driving a car that had become a high mileage car during the years of me driving it. And uh, I tried to buy a new car. And I basically, I, I couldn't couldn't get a new car. I, I even, it got to the point where I put down a deposit on a new car. I was waiting for weeks for what I thought was like uh, information about when my new car would be delivered. And it turned out, no, no, no new car will be forthcoming. And I eventually had to buy a used car that cost more, I think, than the previous new car that I bought, you know, so... That on the surface may sound like, okay, well, what does that have to do with reenacting? But the reality is um, when I realized the position that I was in, it wasn't going to be possible for me to drive myself to a faraway reenactment. My car wasn't reliable and I couldn't get a new one. Yeah, you have to be able to drive to events. And if you can't, if your car doesn't work or you can't get a new car, 
then that's a factor, you know. That's a that's actively affecting event participation. I mean, a lot of people have uh, opportunities to ride to events with someone else in their group or a friend, but you can't really absolutely count on that. No, no, not at all, you know. And I certainly don't. I really kind of pride myself on self-sufficiency and reenacting. Hasn't always been that way. There were times when I was a reenactor that I didn't even have a car and I was just at the mercy of guys in my unit. If they could drive me, I got to the event, and if no one could give me a ride, I didn't go. But... Um, in more recent years, I've been very, I mean, certainly since I've been in charge of a reenactment group, um, I have to have reliable transportation. I have to be able to make absolute commitments to be at events. And I was in a situation where due to no fault of my own, I couldn't, I mean, it was, it, it was a matter of availability of, of vehicles. And I could say the same about all different other kinds of consumer goods. I've been trying to work on more paperwork reproductions. I made the decision to invest in a high quality color laser printer, totally not available anywhere. Or, you know, I don't know if they are now, but uh, when I, when I last looked, it was like, these things are back ordered with no estimated delivery date anywhere. And then People were selling like uh, used in the box ones on eBay for four times, five times the the retail price. We're backtracking a little bit, like I don't know, two years, two and a half years now. But Chris, didn't you have a real problem getting new rubber stamps made uh, when uh, for your for your business when COVID hit? Yeah, I wanted to talk about that actually. I do have a. Uh, it's sort of a business. Uh, I think I can actually say that now because I'm, I'm legit and I'm paying taxes on this stuff. But I sell reproduction rubber stamps for reenactors. Business started a long time ago as a hobby, sort of as a service. I was making rubber stamps for myself, and I thought maybe other people would like to get in on this rubber stamp deal. Um, and I wound up selling tons and tons of rubber stamps. I mean, I was selling... Uh, $1,000 worth of rubber stamps a month. That wasn't wildly unusual when that would happen. Um, and then COVID hit 2020 and uh, two things happened. Number one, the uh, some of the people that I used, like the, the guy, the local person that actually engraved the stamps with the, the guy who owned the laser, uh, he shut down. And did not reopen after the mandatory shutdown ended. So I was left basically unable to manufacture stamps. And then my orders for stamps at the same time absolutely skyrocketed where I had people, I uh, was selling $200 worth of rubber stamps every day, rubber stamps that I couldn't make. I mean, it was a, an absolute nightmare situation. And when I finally, uh, I had to kind of diversify, I had to find other guys, other local guys with other lasers, other people who would work with me, other suppliers for the various components that are needed. Um, it was a lot of work on my end to basically start this whole thing from scratch. Cause don't forget, I've got to, um, I've got to be able to offer these things at a, a resale price. So, you know, I've got to, I can't be paying $15 for something that I'm selling for $15, right? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I don't make a ton of profit here, but there's got to be some incentive here. Um, and then, uh, you know, it, it was tough. And when I finally did figure all that stuff out, I was selling tons and tons of rubber stamps. There were months of, of just huge amounts of money coming in. That's basically why I had to sort of go legitimate, so to speak. That's why I now pay taxes on this, because I realized that there was money coming in, money that's trackable because it's through PayPal. PayPal is going to give me a 1099 that is at a level where 
I'm starting to worry that someone's going to knock on my door and say, "What? Where? The, where are our taxes on all this?" Okay, so here we are now, late in 2022, when I am recording this, and um, my rubber stamp orders are now at an all-time low. Yeah, I think I sold fifty dollars worth of rubber stamps this month. You know, instead of uh, at, at one time, you know, it was hundreds of dollars a week, right? So, um, you know, Ben, I know you resell a lot of stuff on Facebook. You've kind of got a niche where people who want to sell their reenactment gear but don't want to actually deal with the shipping, they consign it to you or you buy it from them and resell it. What's what's your take on kind of the economy of small-scale reenactment selling lately? Well, dude, I was just thinking about this. Um, I'm nervous. I'm very nervous because as we talked about in our last episode, because of, you know, recent sort of political climate, you know, factors that are beyond our, our control, uh, Facebook is eliminating a lot of accounts, you know, without warning. And I know we talked about this in our last episode, but I'm scared that basically I'm going to lose my accounts and that I'm going to lose my platform on which I sell things. But I mean, something that you also mentioned, Chris, is basically, even if they don't get my account, if they get the accounts of my customers, then that's you know if if people are if people are being kicked off Facebook and they're not coming back, then I'm losing. I mean, I won't be able to sell anything to anybody if there's nobody to buy it. So, well, look, uh, yeah. face Facebook kind of aside here. Um, I mean, you must have a sense when you price stuff and list it for sale how fast it flies off. You know, flies off the table, the virtual table. Um, you know, do you think it's as easy to sell an object now? Will it sell as quick? Will it sell as quickly if it is at the same price as it would have a year ago or, or two years ago? I feel like I may have had to lower some of my prices to get it to sell. I feel like, you know, some things that I thought in the past would sell for more have not actually sold for as much. And so I have to, like, lower my price to, you know, move it or just, you know, clear it. Um, I mean, I did get a bunch of stuff in recently and it all sold pretty quickly. So that's still promising. And, uh, but. I mean, sure, there there were also some seasonal ups and downs, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Some people say the summer is kind of a slow time for selling stuff, which maybe is true. We're heading soon into Christmas, which is, for me, historically, not a good time to sell stuff because the stuff that I sell, I feel like people are buying for themselves. And in the cri- lead up to Christmas, a lot of people are spending money on gifts. Oh, yeah, we talked about this last year because I remember, actually, my sales tanked in like sometime in November and they didn't really pick up again until January, you know, like there were some things I, I put up that I thought was a sure thing and nobody bought them. And I'm like, oh, well, this, this is weird. And I'm like, ah, the holidays, of course. <laughs> so we are speaking here from our own limited perspective, Ben, you and I live in the same region and uh, we live in the same country, of course. Um, I had posted on our Discord, which, by the way, is now, uh, if you missed the episode, the previous episode, if you didn't hear this announcement, the Reenactors Corner Discord, which was previously uh, only available to Patreon supporters, is now open to absolutely anybody. And there will be a, a link in the show notes where you can join our Discord server. I had posted in there today asking people... Um, what their experience was um, 
if economic factors had had any effect on their reenacting. And I got some interesting answers. Um, Klaus wrote, international shipping increases have slowly eroded away the viability of a lot of kit. Only larger purchases make international orders worth it. That and situations like the UK leaving the EU mean that everyone wants their cut. Import tax, handling fees, and postage costs can triple the cost of items. Some sellers are just not interested in the hassle of selling abroad now. Items that were cheap and plentiful in Central Europe are now simply not worth the cost of importing. Of course, this is driving up the prices of the original items that are available outside Europe. When you can't get an original, even the reproductions are increasing in price. For example, a weapons-related item I've purchased from an unnamed seller in Poland in 2020 for 75 pounds, and they must have been making a decent profit at that time, is now 230 pounds before shipping costs, which is probably another 30 pounds. Uh, 20% VAT tax, shipping companies handling charges just makes it a pointless exercise unless you have money to burn. Combine this with inflation and out-of-proportion price hikes, and you've got a miserable time ahead. I found myself skipping some non-essential equipment recently, but have noticed a small boom in secondhand sales. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, the the shipping cost thing is a major factor for me that I I totally wasn't even thinking about. Um, Like, uh, there are some items that I used to buy from Germany, a lot of small items that I would use for reenactment, personal kit item type things. I used to pay, I think, 10 euro for shipping. Uh, sometimes maybe as little as five or eight euro. Now, for me to buy virtually anything at all from Germany, the shipping cost starts at around 50 or $55. And so even though the exchange rate has changed and now the dollar uh, is worth more against the euro than it used to be, it's basically not possible for me to buy small items for reenacting from Germany anymore. I just, you know, in order to, for for the 50 or $55 to be worth it, it's... I just can't make it work, you know, so that there's a whole giant broad segment of items that theoretically I could buy that maybe I would like to buy for reenacting that are just I'm just priced out just on the shipping cost alone. Yeah, it's funny, actually. I mean, Chris, we talked about this over dinner before we recorded, but, um, you know, I, I, I get customers or, you know, potential customers who are over in overseas, you know, and they ask to buy something and i have to tell them hey uh i will ship this to you but are you aware that it's going to cost this much to, to to ship to you and they're like oh i'm sorry i'm not interested and i don't blame them honestly because it's it's ridiculous yeah the and i think on some level the cost from shipping the cost of shipping from items from the united states to europe has always been high in relation to how much it costs to ship from europe to the united states but now it's even higher. You know, I used to yeah. ship uh, small items for, uh, you know, $7 and now it might be $25 to ship the same item. So it's been, there's been some dramatic increases there. Totally, dude. Totally. Uh, Matthias Kleber writes, money has always been tight for me, but especially now I have to weigh my want list with how practical an item is. I'll probably focus more on things that can keep me warm or serve some actual use in day-to-day real life. A new coat or a basic cap? Probably. A non-functional gas mask or a niche unusual cap? Unfortunately, probably not. And expensive shipping can cost things off the list too. 
can knock things off the list too. That's an interesting perspective, and I don't know how much of this is economic. I feel like to some degree I have matured as a reenactor and a buyer. In the past, I think I would have just sort of impulse bought something because I thought it looked cool, and then turns out I never wore it or it had no practicality or place, you know, in my life or, you know, in my reenacting time. But that said, I also feel that you know, there's 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 some. I I think I am exercising more consideration in what I'm buying now than before for economic reasons as well. Yeah, like you say, I think, um, you know, Ben, you and I have talked about this a lot, kind of behind the scenes, where we're at with with buying stuff. It's no secret. I have too much stuff. I am a, a hoarder. I'm being crushed underneath mounds of reenactment gear as we speak. It's a horrific uh, burden. And uh, I would ask for your thoughts and prayers that I will get out of the situation alive. Uh, but look, I I have some disposable income. I I'm not saying that I that I don't. Uh, it's not a, like a lot, and the increase in costs has definitely eroded that disposable income. Um, but there's there's another factor here, which is that I don't really know how much disposable income I'm going to have in the future with skyrocketing energy costs and the sort of, I mean, look, I just, frankly, not, not to get political here, I just don't feel like our economy is moving in a direction that's going to be well-suited for me to be more prosperous. Sure. And so I am looking at items. I used to buy items and think, okay, someday I'm going to want to have this. I used to openly advocate for this. Let's say, you know, the availability of reenactment gear changes over time. If you think that someday you might want to do an impression, the time to start buying stuff for that is now. Get the key items now. Um, now my uh, my attitude is very different. I'm not buying things for an unknown future use anymore. If the future use is unknown, uh, that I don't buy. I'm buying stuff where it's like, I am going to use this at the next event. I'm going to use this at this specific event next year and so on. Even if I'm only planning on using it at a single event in a year, there is that concrete plan there. This, this item has this role in this specific thing, this project that I am doing. I have thought a lot about that because I mean, I have definitely, you know, bought items for quote unquote unknown future use, you know, but it, uh, I do kind of see the fallacy in that because the reality is a lot of times I buy something for quote-unquote unknown future use, that never materializes. So it's like, why did I buy that? <laughs> well, let's let's be real honest here. Um, it feels good to buy reenactment kit items. It's fun. It does. It's like Christmas. You get little boxes in the mail, you know? It's, 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 it's fun to buy, and then it's fun to get the box. Yeah. Fun to open the box. Now you've got a cool new thing. Well, and so that spending buying thing, you know, this is a very consumerist kind of reality in which we live. Um, but there is, uh, I don't know, chemicals get released in your brain, right? I mean, this is a thing. Uh, but if, you know, if the cost of, you've got to keep in mind, like, okay, at the cost of what? You know, for me, um, there was a time in my life when spending $200 on reenactment gear every month was something I wouldn't even think about. I had boxes coming in all the time. Yeah. Now, um, you know, I might not have the $200 left over at the end of each and every month. And um, my reenactment gear purchases have certainly slowed. I'm not going to say that they haven't. 
Uh, but it's not like I'm like saving money. The, 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 a lot of that money is just going towards other aspects of life right now. Sure, I feel that. I mean, I've done some reflecting on this this year. You know, I feel like I, I, I bought a lot of stuff on impulse earlier this year. You know, like I feel like sometimes we do that because we like we want to feel better about ourselves or like we're stressed out due to other external factors and it's nice to like have like it's the retail therapy aspect of it but you know i feel like i actually feel better now that i've sort of gotten some control over my spending and so i think i think there's value in just considering that lanzer lucas on discord wrote I recently noticed the euro and dollar have made a massive switch around in value. I normally never order something from the U.S. because I always have to pay extra for import tax and VAT. But I'm now glad I bought my FJ Verka pre-COVID. The difference is huge on big orders, and the import and VAT are paid over the price of the item, including the shipping. This alone just makes web shop purchases from the U.S. no longer viable. Same goes for the U.K. ever since Brexit. Weirdly enough, with Russia and Asia, there have always been workarounds. Interesting. So again, we're in this situation where the world kind of is getting smaller, where uh, making purchases from overseas, which basically is for anybody in this extreme niche worldwide community of reenacting, I mean, making purchases from other countries is like something that you do. And that has become a lot harder for, I guess, everybody. Sure. Totally, dude. And I read this and I think about what I mentioned earlier, that I'm selling less rubber stamps. You know, I used to send uh, parcels to Europe every single month without fail with rubber stamps. And lately it hasn't been like that. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the shipping again. It's just, it's so expensive. Sure. And of course, uh, look, it's, you know, we, we also have to look at how much it costs manufacturers to make these things. I can say from my perspective with the rubber stamps, there are four major components that go into making a rubber stamp, stuff that I have to uh, buy in order to make this stamp. The price of every single one of those components has increased dramatically in the last, over the last, you know, year and a half or something like that. And, sure. uh, you know, I... Uh, have had to increase my prices a little bit on some of the items. Um, but in other cases, I'm just kind of eating the difference because I don't really feel like I can get more for the stuff that I'm selling. You know, I just make, like I say, I wasn't making a lot of money to begin with, and now I'm kind of making even less. It's not my primary job. You know, it's like a hobby turned into a side hustle thing, but um, the lion's share or the revenue from that lately has, has kind of dried up, you know, maybe it'll come back around. I don't know. Maybe I have to find some other thing to sell. Yeah. That's a valid point, dude. I don't know. I mean, I don't really have anything new to add other than that. It, uh, it is, it is unfortunate. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I will throw out there that I know that there are like, people who are really suffering money-wise, people who don't know how to uh, pay their bills. I'm really thankful that I'm not in that situation. And um, if you were in that situation, you're probably uh, turning green over there uh, with with nausea, right? Hearing me blab on about how I can't spend hundreds of dollars of, on reenactment kit every uh, every month or whatever. But it's a change, you know. At the end of the day, I mean, I feel like it is a hobby and... Uh, the hobby is defined in various different ways, but uh, 
you know, one of the ways in which I, I, I think it's defined is it's something that you can spend your, you know, spare time and spare money on, you know. And so we are discussing what happens when, you know, maybe you have to tighten the belt and you don't have spare money or spare time for the hobby anymore. Yeah, it's a luxury thing. Yeah. It's a luxury thing. Basically, Ben and I have talked about this before. Uh, I do not really regard myself, generally speaking, as a like fabulously wealthy person by any means. But on, on some level, everybody who has enough money to participate in this hobby is is kind of rich in like a global scale, right? In the grand scheme of things, if you can buy a reenactment kit that costs thousands of dollars to put together and spend hundreds of dollars going to events to use that, you've got some disposable income, you know? Yeah, and, yeah that's uh, true. So, you know, and there are a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people in this world who would never hope to be able to do that. Totally. Uh, kind of a big picture thing, Ben, that we haven't really talked about is what are the chances that this economic uh, turmoil that we're seeing now, these this inflation, these increasing prices and so on are going to result in fewer people getting into reenacting. Well, I think, you know, I didn't want to say it, but I feel like it's, that is, I'm not going to say it's ordained, but I feel like it's definitely a plausible thing that could happen. Right. Like maybe everyone who's still doing it, they have their kit and most of those guys are going to keep doing it. But I think I could definitely see it affecting certainly the number of new people getting in. Sure. Um, totally. And we, you know, another thing that we kind of didn't really talk about, this is sort of a, a side tangent, and this is kind of USA based, but the cost of weapons have just absolutely skyrocketed, and they make a lot of basic World War II kits much more expensive for people coming in. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I know I've said this on this, this show before, but uh, when I got in the hobby, Russian capture current eight would be like, they were kind of frowned upon as being shitty. And I think they were like two to four hundred dollars. You know, it was expensive if he paid four hundred dollars for one. And now it's like, oh my god, what they're like eight, nine, a grand. You know, I think that they do sell for as much as a thousand dollars. I think that the the basic rifle of the uh, U.S. Army soldier, the M1 Garand, that's that's over a thousand dollars now, as far as I'm aware. The, and, the Mosin Nagant, which for the longest time was famously cheap. You know, like. Uh, this was way before my time, but couldn't you buy those things for like under a hundred dollars? I paid sixty-five dollars in you know two thousand and five or whatever. I hate your guts, you son of a bitch. I could have bought as many as I wanted at that price. Incredible. And then dude. real nice ones were eighty bucks. Wow, wow, incredible. Like dude. a hex receiver, I paid. I paid eighty bucks. I paid four hundred dollars for mine. I was told when I bought it that that was too expensive. Now. You're se yeah, I think you're seeing non-hex receiver ones sell for that amount of money. Yeah, I honestly don't even know how much they are. I mean, when what part of the appeal for me when I first looked at doing World War II Soviet as an impression was the fact that it was so absurdly cheap. You could get the whole kit for like under $250, including the rifle. Yeah. And those days are over. It's become probably uh, as expensive or nearly as expensive as kind of any other... Um, you know, maybe not quite as expensive as German because you don't need as much stuff. I, I guess if you're doing like a very early war kit, you do. But the basic uh, 1944 era Soviet rifleman, I think you can still put together for cheaper than uh, some other yeah. nationality suppression. But it's, yeah. it has become much, much more expensive than it was. And it's certainly not cheap. Yeah, dude. <sighs> very unfortunate. Sad state of affairs. Well, there is a good, there is a good part of this. And it is that 
when times are tough and people have to tighten their belts, if you do, if you are fortunate enough that you do have any money to spend, it means uh, cheaper prices for goods, um, so especially the luxury type stuff that we're talking about. And I, I think I'm already seeing that happening. I know that like I buy original World War II stuff, I would assert that prices have softened in some categories uh, lately. Other people might push back on that, but I've talked to some other people who are active in other collectibles fields, things like Rolex watches that went absolutely crazy during the pandemic. Those are now selling for much less than they were in 2021. Um, in most cases, also like sports cards, sports cards had a huge bubble that happened during the pandemic that has absolutely popped and prices have come way, way down on a lot of those items. And I think we could be seeing stuff like that happening. I'm not necessarily uh, betting on this, but I could see it being possible that, uh, basic military surplus rifles like a K98 or a Mosin Nagant might come down in price. You know, some of the items that we use for reenacting that we buy on the secondary market, they might be maybe we could maybe you could buy a used uh German army M43 tunic for 50 bucks again, you know. It's I I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. I would certainly hope so. I I would certainly hope so. I wouldn't bet my life on it, you know, but um yeah, fingers crossed. Eh? There's so many various reasons uh, and different integral parts that kind of keep a unit together and keep it running for inching up toward 50 years here as a, as a unit. So to be, be able to say that you've been around for, for this amount of time, it, it's, it's quite impressive. To get that full immersion in 3,000 meters, uh, it snowed on us, it was frost at night, sleeping in, under cell ponds. Yeah, it was a great experience being on, on that location, being in the Alps, uh, wearing the uniform and being with like-minded guys. It's a real pleasure to be here as a, as a long-time listener and someone whose long drives to reenactments are uh, filled with the sounds of the reenactors corner podcast. It's a bit of a fanboy moment. All right, so that's about all the time that we've got for this topic. Uh, Thanks for coming along with us on this uh, Weird Economist ride. Um, Hope we didn't bore you to tears on this one. (laughs) Indeed. So to close this one out, just like to say uh, thanks again to everybody who supports us on Patreon. And to Ben and everybody else out there, I will see you in the field. See you in the field.